Welcome to the foot of the rapids, where today we will continue our discussion of military punishments during the War of 1812. And that opening piece of music, if you remember, was the Rogue's March, played by the fife and drum to escort prisoners from the brig, or parade them in ridicule before the army, or to march them to the edge of camp and be drummed out of the service and left to their fate in the wilds of the North American frontier. Last week we discussed discipline within the ranks of the British Army, and we learned about the fine art of flogging a man. Today we will turn our focus to the American side and learn the creative and often brutal ways the blue-coated army would deal with misbehavior. Here also, discipline would function as a key component to all things within the military state. To support this reputation purchased by valor and by blood, you must, with fortitude, meet the hardships and discharge the duties of soldiers. Discipline and subordination mark the real soldier and are indeed the soul of an army. In every situation, therefore, the most perfect subordination, the most rigid discharge of duty will be expected from all. Partiality or injustice shall be shown to none. I have the most perfect confidence in your attachment and support through every difficulty we may encounter. It is upon you, it is upon your subordination and discipline that I rely for a successful issue of this present campaign. Without this confidence and support, we shall achieve nothing honorable or useful. And this excerpt was cannibalized from episode two of this podcast. If you recall, this was General Green Clay addressing newly formed troops in Kentucky. The point being, he seems to dwell on the idea of discipline being central to his command, or success would never be achieved. Indeed, officers never missed an opportunity to pound this into the psyche of soldiers temporarily abating their displeasure with the rigors and small injustices of a freshman army. On the 14th in the afternoon, the army was paraded in a suitable form. Colonel Sutton appeared as commander-in-chief, the general being absent. He delivered a mild discourse stating his orders from his superiors and exhorting and admonishing his brothers and fellow citizens to obey him, as he termed them. He dwelled a considerable time in explaining what would be the inevitable consequence of a disobedient, insubordinate army, contrasted with the happy effect that would arise from union, subordination, and passive obedience. The characteristic features of all armies that could promise themselves success and honor. This discourse somewhat pacified the discontent of many in the army. Nathan Newsom, Ohio Militia. 
Unlike their British counterparts, American commanders could not rely on the potentially deadly pain of the Cat of Nine Tails to instill the fear and correctness required to make an army function efficiently. With war looming and tensions between the U.S. and Great Britain ever advancing, flogging in the army was forbidden by an act of Congress in April 1812. Making the army appear less severe, it was hoped this would help drive men to the enlistment rendezvous, who otherwise would beg off military service in the face of such a brutal lifestyle. The Republican and Libertarian ideals of the age of Jefferson and Madison swam upstream to the structure and rigid control the military demanded. Enlistments would suffer in the United States throughout the war. In the western frontier lands, men were used to a certain degree of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. They chafed to submit to the control of others. Discipline could be problematic. John S. Hare, in the Journal of the American Military Institute, wrote, quote, Militia regiments were under the command of officers elected by their subordinates without particular regard for their military qualifications. These officers were retained after their units were transferred to federal service, which meant that in the new organization, inexperienced officers were faced with the Herculean task of establishing and maintaining discipline among men to whom the very idea of restraint was repellent and of doing this in the shortest possible time. To accomplish this, any practice of rewards would have been hopelessly inadequate. Only a system of pains and penalties could get the necessary results, and the great deterrent of fear was relied upon." End quote. Officers would rely on a number of creative punishments to wound men's egos and sense of character, as public shaming featured prominently in the sentences of courts-martial, this coming in the age not too far removed from the pillory, the stocks, tar and feathering rituals. In a time when individuals owned relatively little and had little or no money they could be fined, One's personal honor and integrity went a long way in small communities. Therefore, when threatened or tarnished, this was a considerable offense and potentially devastating punishment. Minor infractions of camp rules often resulted in the loss of some privilege, particularly whiskey rations, or some form of public humiliation or personal degradation. Philip Hoffman, a substitute in Captain Courtright's, was brought up and received sentence. The charges substantiated against him were stealing two blankets and getting drunk. His sentence was that the half of his head should be shaved and his left eyebrow. That he would then be marched in front of the line and received full blows with a paddle on his backside, then drummed out of the camp with the rogue's march and to get a final dismissal from military duty. The sentence was executed so far until the blows with the paddle should have commenced. The general ordered that after he was shaved and marched in front of the lines, that then immediately he should be drummed out of camp with the rogue's march. 
till some distance outside the line of the rear guard. Nathan Newsom, Ohio Militia. December 4th, at 10 o'clock, we were paraded and marched to the blockhouse and there witnessed a scene extremely disagreeable to ever feel in mind, to see one of our brother soldiers suffer the penalty of his crimes. We were drawn up in columns by a battalion. The regiment were 10 paces apart and the prisoner Abe Grior was brought by order of the Brigade Major Dunlap, seated in the center on a stump. The crimes for which he was punished was then made known by the Major which were lying, stealing, and deserting. They then proceeded to shave the right side of his head, give him a written discharge, and done him the honor of beating the rogues march after him round the brigade. Green Barrakeen, Pennsylvania Militia. At the same time and on the same ground, three prisoners were brought up who were substitutes for drafted men. Their crime was desertion. Their sentence was read to them and put into execution immediately after. They were stripped naked, their pantaloons accepted. Their backs were daubed with tar to make a paper stick thereon, containing their crime in very large letters. Their hands and feet were tied together and in this position they were hung by hand and feet to a rail that carried them by the front of the lines and afterwards their left eyebrows were shaved. They were afterward ordered to be taken to the guardhouse and there be kept handcuffed and in a half rations during four days before liberating. Nathan Newsom, Ohio Militia. Headquarters, Upper Sandusky, Northwest Army, January 12, 1813, General Orders, at a court-martial held at Upper Sandusky, on which Colonel Connell was president, was tried the following prisoners to wit. Hugh Munnell, a private of Captain Anderson's company of the Pennsylvania Militia, in the service of the United States, charged with desertion on the 16th of December, 1812. To such charge, the prisoner pled not guilty. The court found him guilty and sentenced him to be kept in confinement, handcuffed for five days, half his pay to be stopped for 15 days to be applied to the hospital, half his rations to be stopped 15 days. John Johnson, a private in Captain William Prince's company of the 1st Regiment, Virginia, charged with desertion on 4 November 1812, to which charge the prisoner pled guilty. The court found him guilty and sentenced him to be kept at hard labor for 10 days with a chain to his ankle fastened to a weight of 56 pounds. Joseph Walker, a private of Captain James Wheelie's company of the 2nd Regiment Pennsylvania Militia in the service of the United States, charged with mutiny and leaving his post on 30th of December 1812, to which charge the prisoner pled not guilty. The court, after deliberation on the testimony produced, found the prisoner Joseph Walker guilty on the charges exhibited against him and sentenced him to be kept at hard labor 10 days with a chain and weights before mentioned. Half his pay stopped two months to be applied to use of the hospital. 
all of which sentence passed on. Hugh Munsell, John Johnson, and Joseph Walker are approved by the general commanding who directs to be carried into immediate effect. The general court-martial of which Colonel Connell was president is hereby dissolved. Greenberry Keene, Pennsylvania Militia. Some officers felt their greatest tool, the lash, had been denied them, and the army and government had gone too soft. General Jacob Brown of the Niagara Frontier was a particular proponent of refining the system in favor of a more British style of soldiers' treatment, all the way down to their pay amounts and clothing allotment. But officers were not exempt from punishment when found guilty of conduct unbecoming of an officer. Before the entire assembled division, a Lieutenant Barrett had his sword broken over his head, having been found guilty of cowardice and abandoning his post in the face of the enemy. The surrounding community of Plattsburgh, New York, became aware of his cashiermint and cowardice through ordered publications there as well as within his hometown, to cite just one example. This business of breaking one's sword over their heads is of course symbolic and likely did not inflict physical pain or damage, the sword being the symbol of office and rank, now stripped and useless. And being cashiered is a state of being ostracized from other officers who cannot and will not converse with you afterwards, as you no longer carry the rank and privilege to mix with their class. They court-martialed one of Langhorne's company by the name of Edwards for going to sleep on his post when on guard. His sentence was to stand two hours on the breastwork and be jeered at by the whole army. At another one of our encampments, one of my messmates by the name of John Terrell was guilty of whooping a woman. We had marched hard all day and eat nothing from soon in the morning until dark. We had drew our half rations and divided them out when he took his share and cut it in two pieces and put them on a stick about four feet long, a small piece in the front of a large one so that it might cook first that he might be eaten on it while the other piece was getting done. There came along a woman by the name of Kate Staley that belonged to the regulars and said to him, For God's sake, give me some of that meat, for I am almost starved. He turned around and held the stick out, telling her to take of the small piece. But instead of taking the small piece as directed, she took both hands and cleaned his stick. He stood and looked at her until she had got three or four steps off when he raised the stick and took after her and gave her a lick for every step for about 20. But she held on to the meat and he, poor fellow, went without his supper. The boys thought that he had committed an outrage by whooping a woman and arrested him and put him under guard and formed a court and had a jury summoned and tried him for the offense. We had two young lawyers in our company, and one of them took Terrell's side, and the other took the woman's, 
and after giving the case a full investigation, found him guilty and sentenced him to receive four bumps against a beech tree that stood hard by. But when he heard his sentence, he slipped away from the guard and hid himself in amongst the baggage wagons, and we did not get him that night. But we gave the penalty to the guard for letting him get away, and he went without his supper and did not hear the last of it while we stayed together. William B. Northcutt, Kentucky Mounted Rifles. I had not been here long when I witnessed an awful punishment inflicted on a soldier for the crime of desertion. His sentence was to have 100 stripes on his back by the method styled running the gauntlet and then to wear the ball and chain at hard labor for five years. Two ranks of men, 50 in each, struck the offender one stroke on his naked back with a green switch as he passed along between them. Soldiers with bayonets pointed at him preceded and followed so that the poor wretch could neither run nor escape but was compelled to bear his torture without remedy. The blood ran down his back in streams which was entirely divested of its integument and presented a spectacle to melt the heart of a stone. A cannonball weighing 24 pounds was attached to his ankle by an iron chain about 8 or 10 feet in length and he was removed to the guardhouse to be in readiness to commence his five years task. I do not understand how this is not considered flogging unless the stipulation be raised that green switches be used instead of hemp whipcord. Or perhaps young Jarvis Hanks, whom we just heard from, got the timing mixed up in his memory and this incident took place after the ban on flogging was lifted in 1814. Or if the far north of New York State and Vermont were considered far enough away from the War Department that defiant officers dealt out punishment as they saw fit. We will hear again from Jarvis Hanks as crimes and punishments increase and darken as the war years deepen. Wednesday, March 31st. This day, a general court-martial sentenced John T. Mosby, a private in Captain Bradford's company, for threatening to blow up the magazine and then to desert to the British. He, to be confined, tied to a post or log in a tent by himself one month, to have a handcuff on his right hand, to ride a wooden horse thirty minutes once a week for one month, with a six-pound ball fastened to each foot, to wear a ball and chain the whole time, to have one eyebrow and one side of his head shaved, and to be fed on bread and water only. After the time of confinement expires, he is to be drummed out of camp and taken over the line of the Indian boundary on the way to Kentucky.
Diary of Captain Daniel Cushing, 2nd United States Artillery. I enjoy this quote from Captain Cushing. Not only is Private Mosby's crime bizarre and strikingly dangerous, but he gets quite the book thrown at him in a long list of exotic punishments which typifies the creative lengths courts had to extend to to see justice done. We will go through a summation litany just now of American punishments in the War of 1812 in case some of the details in the readings have fallen through the cracks. Fines pay being stopped and often applied to the hospital ward. Whiskey rations cut, standard. Half rations, or bread and water. The black hole, or confinement in a guardhouse. Wearing the ball and chain. Hard labor for days, weeks, or years. Cobbing, this is the paddling on the derriere we've encountered before. Riding a wooden horse or some kind of rail between the legs. Standing on barrels, stumps, or breastworks, sometimes for hours or days. Signage or dunce caps detailing the crime. Paraded with the musicians playing the rogue's march or discharge being drummed out of camp. It should be noted that at frontier encampments like Fort Meg's here at the foot of the rapids, there was no jailhouse or prison for miscreants. And being drummed out of camp here could be a seriously dangerous affair, as there were many miles or days to travel to the next bit of civilization, all through wild country inhabited by hostile Native American Indians opposed to the United States. Plus, upon arrival anywhere, the clear message stated by your half-shaved head and eyebrows would indicate to anyone you were not an individual to be trusted and just as soon steer clear of you than lend any aid to your plight. More and more, desertion became a commonplace crime as the war dragged into 1814. This likely due to the nagging gnaw of homesickness and weariness of war, death, disease, and discipline. Some would say that punishments only make a good soldier bad, and a bad soldier even worse, as their faith in a just system and the merits of democracy faded in the face of autocratic military rule. Bounty jumping throughout the war became one of the most serious, constant, and troubling crimes of the era, this being desertion for the purpose of re-enlisting somewhere else in order to collect the fabulous cash-in-hand bonus of signing up for service. In an effort to crack down on their weakening numbers, the sentences of courts-martial became heavier, and the ugly work of the death sentence began being meted out with less hesitation. It was a scene of great interest to witness the violent destruction of life for the crime of desertion. Two men were hung for desertion in June. 
they were both placed on the gallows together. When the executioner cut the rope which held the drop, well, they both fell, one to rise no more, the other to the ground. The rope broke above his head. He seemed but little hurt. He stood upon his feet on terra firma while his companion swung in view, struggling in the agonies of death. A deep groan of horror burst involuntarily from the surrounding thousands of their fellows in arms who had been drawn up to witness the wages of insubordination. They hoped, however, that the living man would now be pardoned as Providence seems to have so signally interposed on his behalf. But our hopes were disappointed. At the command of an officer, Jack Ketch, tied the fatal knot around the miserable fellow's throat, threw the other end of it over the top of the gallows, and with the assistance of another or two persons, drew him up high enough to choke him to death. We were compelled to remain upon the ground until life was extinct, a period of 20 or 30 minutes. During the time we remained at Buffalo, five men were sentenced to be publicly shot for the offense of desertion. They were dressed in white robes with white caps upon their heads and a red target fastened over the heart. The army was drawn up in a hollow square to witness the example that was about to be made of the comrades who had proved recreant to the regulations of the servants. Five graves were dug in a row, five coffins placed near them, also in a line, with distance between coffins and graves to enable the criminals to kneel between them. About twelve men were assigned to the execution of the offender. Their guns were loaded by officers, and they were not permitted to examine them afterwards until they were fired. All things being in readiness, the chaplain made a prayer the caps were pulled down over the eyes of the poor culprits and the word of command given. Ready, aim, fire. They all fell, some into their graves, some over their coffins. One struggled faintly and the commanding officer ordered a sergeant to approach and end his misery. He obeyed by putting the muzzle of his piece within a yard of his head and discharging it. This quieted him perfectly. At this time, one of the condemned slowly arose from his recumbent position to his knees and was assisted to his feet. His first remark was, By God, I thought I was dead. In consequence of his youth and the peculiar circumstance of his case, he had been reprieved, but the fact was not communicated to him until this moment. He had anticipated execution with his comrades, and when the report of the guns took place, he fell with them, though not a ball touched him. The platoon assigned to him had guns given to them which were not charged, or at least had nothing but powder in them. Jarvis Hanks, drummer boy. While on this island, a deserter for the fourth time was tried, condemned, and shot 
This thing of shooting men judicially is very serious business. The army is formed into a hollow square on ground rising from the center each way, if to be had, so that all can see to advantage. The condemned man is placed on his knees in the center, and twelve men are detailed to do the work of death. Their guns are loaded by the officers, one of which is left without a ball, but the men know not which it is, so that each one hopes it is his. The prisoner is blindfolded and shot at the word of command, ready, aim, fire. If he is not killed at the first shot, the guns are reloaded and the firing repeated as soon as possible. No one feels like deserting after such a sight. One such scene of an impressive character occurred at Seneca. A sentinel was found asleep on his post and condemned to be shot. All things were prepared as usual. The army in a hollow square, the man upon his knees and hoodwinked. The guard in position with their guns loaded. The word ready was given when the poor fellow turned pale and expected to hear the other words, aim, fire, and to fall dead and appear before the judge of all men. But that instant, the general raised his hand and said, as you were. This brought the guns to a shoulder of arms, and the pardon was granted, accompanied with a lecture to the troops on the importance of a sentinel's keeping awake on his post, because the lives of the whole army might possibly be lost as the consequence of such sleep. As soon as the poor fellow could get at the chance, he went to the general and fell on his knees, thanked him for the pardon, declaring that he not only saved his body from death, but his soul from hell. For, he said, I am not prepared to die. I have neglected my soul's salvation, and I expected to be in hell before this time. And now, if God spares me, I will be a good soldier and seek for his mercy and pardon. The general is said to have wept and sent him away with his blessing. This man got through the war safe, got home, obtained religion, married, and raised a family. Sergeant Alfred Brunson, 27th U.S. Infantry. General William Henry Harrison is the commanding officer Sergeant Brunson is referring to here. And Harrison was known for commuting death sentences. But here we can see him achieving his goals without the loss of life and demoralization of the army. The guilty soldier is hereby reformed and went on to be a model citizen, and it provided him the opportunity to address the assemblage on the importance of adhering to stout-hearted commitments to the war and the fellows in the ranks. Though not alone among the U.S. Army command staff, Harrison seems to have a keen understanding of the power of the Army's public image at home in America. Some enlistment periods could be very short, and soldiers returning home with horror stories perpetrated not by a foreign enemy, but inflicted by our own faithless and unsympathetic countrymen would slowly and certainly erode enthusiasm for the war effort, and fewer and fewer men would arrive at recruiting posts with a breast full of ardor and fighting spirit. 
It is this understanding of the home front and his benevolence towards soldiers that likely aided in his being vaulted by those men full of ardor to the presidency in 1840. And we close today with a strange and sickly tale brought to us by Colonel John Cochran of Ohio, who tells of a young man awaiting his execution late in the war. I hope we speak again. Huzzah. That same night, an unfortunate young man, I think his name was Jimmy Brett, I will not be positive. He left camp, I could not exactly call it deserting, with his uniform on, to go and see his mother some six or ten miles off. The troops were then under marching orders, he did not try to hide, and a neighbor of his brought him in the next day and delivered him to me at the barracks and claimed a reward for him. The court-martial was still in session, he was tried, found guilty, and on the third day was shot. Poor, unfortunate youth. He had just seen an example on the very same day, and that same night he left to see his mother and gave his life for the satisfaction of seeing the woman that watched over his childhood. He was a youth was promised a furlough by the officer who enlisted him, but it was not given to him. I talked to him a good deal before his trial. I told him there was no hope for him. I said, you must make your peace with God, for there was no chance under the heavens to save you. Your doom is final and without hope. I was the junior member of that court, and I will recollect that when asked, what do you say? I said, not guilty. What punishment? Discharge him, said I, and let him go and fight for his country. The president had published an amnesty for all deserters, and the boy was told then that he could go home and come back under that proclamation. Poor deluded boy. He was in fine spirits when he came back, and the man that brought him in, or rather came with him, said to me that the boy was coming back that day, but he was coming with his wagon, and he said he would come along. It would save him a long walk. At any other time, his life would have been spared. But the aggravated circumstances and the high state of excitement at the time, it would seem to those that did not know the influences that prompted the boy to do the act. And looking at the terrible example just passed, it looked like it was done in perfect contempt of the law. And the fact was, well, he was shot to deter others and to conclusively say that if you desert you will suffer death in strict conformity with the rules and articles of war. I was satisfied with the boy's honest intentions. He had, by his repeated denial, satisfied me that he had no intention of deserting and enlisted my sympathy in his favor. 
although I told him that I had no hope for him. You must die, said I. Set an example for others. Act the man, for your fate is sealed. And on the third day after his desertion, I, with what troops I had, was ordered to bring the prisoner to Camp Bull. We left with the poor boy handcuffed, and the solemn death march played. When we got there, the troops were all under arms, and I surrendered my charge into the hands of the officer destined to receive him. My last words to him were, Be brave, and die like a soldier. The boy summoned all his resolution. Everything was ready. At the click of the musket, he gave an involuntary shudder. And the next instant, his spirit was before his God. This was short work. John Cochran